Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest. Now, when you start building a community wrapped around a business and you create an environment, you facilitate an environment where your customers can play a role in the success of what you're doing, you can generate enormous amounts of value that you would never, A, you, you probably could never afford to pay for, and B, will focus on areas that you would never be able to prioritize. Welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our Slash Data Podcast. I'm Stathis, your host. It always makes me happy to see developer marketing growing. As we've said before, it's a rather new field with not so many resources for newcomers. And uh, this is exactly the reason that led us initially to publish our book, Developer Marketing and Relations, The Essential Guide, and to create this podcast. But now the catalog of available resources is getting longer, thanks to great people like today's guest, Jono Bacon. Jono is a community and collaboration strategy consultant, an author, and a podcaster too, who has been very generous in sharing his experience and now has a new book called People Empowered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business, Brand, and Teams. Jono, welcome to the show. Will you please it's great. introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, it's great to be here, Stathis. Thank you for having me on. Um, so yeah, as a a little bit of background, you, I think you already touched on the most important pieces. I work with companies to help them build communities um, across a really broad range of areas. <clears throat> I work with a lot of uh, open source and technology companies, but I also work with companies that are in consumer products and banking and security in all kinds of places. And my basic goal in life is I'm firmly of the belief that communities don't just make the world a better place. I think we're a social species. We enjoy spending time together, but I think it makes businesses and companies more effective and more efficient because you've got this massive collection of people out there in your audience who've got time and insight and expertise. And if you weave them together in the right way, you can get pretty incredible results. Yes, that's true. I totally agree there. But uh, how did you end up in uh, technology and then uh, in communities? What was the driving force <laughs> or uh, the role model, if you want, that led you to where you are today? Yeah, I think like a lot of people probably listening to this, it was a bit weird. Um, I was living in England um, with my mum and dad. I was about 18, just about to go to university. And uh, my brother came home and stayed uh, for a couple of weeks and... Um, he introduced me to this operating system called Linux, which back then nobody had ever heard of, including myself. But today um, is powering, you know, data centers across the world uh, and devices in your pocket. And when I discovered Linux, <clears throat> I, I, I discovered that thousands of people all over the world work together uh, in building it. Right? You know, they work together in an open source community, which back then, again, was not really a particularly well-known concept. This is in 1998. Uh, and I was just, pass uh, just fascinated by this. You know, how is it that you get these people all over the world to work together on the internet together to build something? You know, this is way before GitHub and everything else. Um, and I just, for me, it just opened up a, a light bulb in my head, which was, I want to understand how you do that. Like, how do you really weave together the right kind of environment for, for people to build interesting things? Um, and, you know, I set up a, a couple of communities in the UK around open source and Linux, 
went on to work uh, for an organization called Open Advantage, which essentially provided free consulting around um, technology and open source to people. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to kind of roll my sleeves up and jump into the deep end of how to do this. And then I went to Canonical, XPrize, GitHub. But the thing that has consistently been connected throughout all of this is always seeing newer and newer examples of how communities can deliver really interesting things, whether it's Wikipedia, you know, uh, Salesforce, HitRecord, Harley-Davidson, Kubernetes, TensorFlow, all kinds of different examples. Yeah, yeah, that seems uh, like a very good point, you know, to start thinking about communities first. And um, I guess it was your brother. <laughs> that, it was. Uh, was it the Blame him. For <laughs> behind all of this. It's good yep. to hear. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And um, honestly, we're very happy to have you on the podcast. And uh, Thank you. Spoil, spoiler alert for our listeners. We have on our upcoming Future Developer Summit. Uh, you'll be leading a fireside chat there. Yep. For our listeners who are not aware of it, the Future Developer Summit, it's uh, our event organized by Slash Data where uh, thought leaders discuss the future of developer marketing and uh, developer relations. So if you guys want to know more about our upcoming event or attend it, it will take place on April 7 and 8 at uh, Menlo Park in California, focusing on engaging open source developers. You can see the full speaker lineup, the agenda, and tickets at uh, futuredeveloper.io. So we'll have a fire chat there with Jono. And um, yeah. tease, tease us a bit about it, how you think about empowering people, if you want, during the Future Developer Summit. Yeah, I mean, I love the one of the things I like about fireside chats is that it's not just me standing up there with slides waffling to an audience. You know, I think people like to hear much more interactive discussion. Uh, and what I love about them is that we can get into all manner of range of topics, you know. So w when I'm working with communities, as I'm sure many of the people listening to this, um, there are so many different pieces that glue into that. It's how do you incentivize people? Um, how do you build efficient developer on-ramps? Uh, how do you do content marketing and social media? How do you do events, right? How do you build a set of kind of core principles and conduct to make sure you have a healthy community? And uh, what I'm anticipating when we get into the fireside chat is really kind of touching on many of these, if not all of them, um, to try and get into some of the nuance of that. So, you know, one thing I'd love to hear just from, from your listeners is like, what's the most interesting thing that they want to hear about? Um, and you can email me at jono at jonobacon.com and let me know. So before I show up at the, uh, at the Future Developer Summit, I have a, a good sense of what the audience is looking for as well, because this is a big subject. There's a lot we can talk about uh, that will span way beyond the fireside chat. Yes, there's definitely a lot of things to, to say there. And um, we want to hear it too. So um, if you want to take your questions public um, on Twitter, uh, John, yeah. how, how can they reach you? And uh... yeah, well, my my Twitter. I mean, luckily having a name like John O'Bacon, it's such a ridiculously stupid name that uh, I tend to have all of the usernames and the different services. So you can on Twitter, it's John O'Bacon. On Facebook, it's John O'Bacon. On Instagram, it is John O'Bacon Graham because somebody did take my username, which I was a little upset about. Um, but yeah, John O'Bacon is on Twitter is probably the easiest way to send yeah, a message. Yeah. That's definitely a reason to, to be upset about. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Also, if you take your questions to Twitter, uh, please tag us because we, we really want to know too. It's uh, at slash data HQ. 
So thank you for that. And Jono, is, um, it's already uh, within a few minutes that you're very passionate about communities. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Why, why are communities important? And, uh, or uh, if you want to take it, make it a bit more specific, why should someone, when, someone says, when I say someone, I mean uh, a business, should spend resources <coughs> on building a community? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's a big question. Um, I think that the, the, the reason, let's start with the reason why they're important. Um, I think when you take away the computers, the screens, the laptops, the phones, we're animals and we're social animals and we, we spend time together um, and we do it for lots of different reasons. Uh, you know, thousands of years ago, we formed together into villages because we were stronger as a group. We could protect ourselves from, from the masses and from the enemy and from the elements. So we're an intrinsically social species and we get a lot of value out of doing things together. It's why we form into businesses and into families and into book clubs and knitting clubs and everything else. So communities meet a very clear, clear psychological need but when you connect them to a shared mission or an ethos, whether that's um, you know, building a community of developers or it could be around a technology platform or it could be something else, um, we can get really pretty remarkable results, right? So if you look at the data, you know, Salesforce, Oracle, SAP have built communities of over a million people who get together to provide support and run events. You've got Harley Davidson, 1,700 local groups around the world. Fitbit, 1.8 million people who get together to talk about effective exercise and, mail, uh, and meal regimes. Um, we've seen you know, Wiki, Wikipedia, which is valued at tens of billions of dollars by the Smithsonian. There's loads and loads of examples of value when we get together as a group. Um, so, for businesses, you know, the value here is that let's say you've got a thousand customers or a thousand users, they could be independently just doing their own thing. Or if you weave them together into a community, they can create documentation, they can translate software, they can run events, they can do all kinds of different things if you build an environment that's meaningful for them to do that. Um, but I think there is also a broader change that's happening because if you look at the growth of technology, especially in the last 10 years, um, there are 6 billion mobile devices in the world. Uh, 4 billion of those are used for social media. 85% of millennials are carrying a phone in their pocket. Um, you know, the cost of a gigabyte of, uh, of data in India is considerably cheaper than it is in the US and, U and the UK. So technology is growing massively around the world. And we have younger generations who are growing up with technology and social technology. So they want to use technology to do meaningful and interesting work and form into groups. So the relationship that people have with companies is changing. You know, back in the old days, the only time you'd engage with the companies through their customer support line. And then as the internet grew, people would start sending newsletters and, and marketing materials out to, company, uh, out to their, their, their customers. But today, people want to go a step further and have a relationship with, with, with the companies that they care about. So to me, communities tick all of those different boxes. Now, they're not a walk in the park to set up. There's complexity there. There is risk there. But there's an enormous amount of opportunity to kickstart it. Totally agree. It's, uh, my idea is uh, exactly in the terms you described it. It's that we're species that we seek each other's uh, company right. or uh, working together. So uh, online communities are a form of, uh, it's a natural evolution of uh, us people adjusting to, to the new tools where, uh, that, exactly. are now, that are now available. So um, yeah. 
I kept nodding while you were talking, obviously in agreement. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did uh, exactly the same thing when um, while reading uh, a recent article you wore, wrote on uh, Harvard Business Review. And uh, oh, I will, yeah. I will add, yeah, I will add a link to our episode descriptions for our listeners, so uh, you guys can refer to it. Uh, it's really useful material. Uh, and uh, there you, you're discussing about some uh, advantages of uh, companies, you know, from transitioning the business model from uh, the traditional product uh, focus to a heavier focus on uh, community building. So mm. could you uh, walk, walk us through these advantages? Yeah. So, you know, the way businesses would operate, again, back in kind of the old days and, and the way some businesses operate today is that you'd hire a bunch of people, they come into your organization, uh, you work to understand the needs of your customers or your users, and then you build products and services that serve those needs. And historically, they'd be very command and control, right? You would have a, a senior executive team, they would hand the, the directives down to their uh, VPs, and they would hand them down to their leaders, and they would hand them down to the people on the ground who would do the work um, or execute the, the tactics. And the, the, the disadvantage of that model is that it's always fundamentally dependent on your staff. It's always dependent on the people you pay to, to deliver that value. Now, when you start building a community wrapped around a business and you create an environment, you facilitate an environment where your customers can play a role in the success of what you're doing, you can generate enormous amounts of value that you would never, A, you you probably could never afford to pay for, and B, will focus on areas that you would never be able to prioritize. So let me give you an example. Salesforce is actually a pretty good technology example of this. Salesforce, and they've got a whole range of different products, and they are so configurable that you could never write enough documentation to solve every possible use case. You could never have a support team that could, solve, that could answer every conceivable question. So the Salesforce community that's you know, grown to over a million, what they call trailblazers, have produced just endless amounts of documentation, videos, events, training sessions, Q&A resources, where people can, can understand every nuance of how they build and how they use their product in their specific situation. And the key of what they've done there is they've incentivized how people do that. So when you join the community, and this is any good community will do this, it's not that you just show up and you're cheap labor. It's that you feel part of something. You feel that you're playing a role in something that's bigger than you. You know, a good example of this is actually outside of the developer space. It's called Fractal Audio Systems. And I write about, I, I write about this in People Powered. Um, they build musical equipment. Like I'm a musician. I put music out there. Um, and the, the, they've got a product called the Axefx, which is essentially a, it simulates a whole bunch of different guitar equipment uh, digitally. Um, so, you know, there's 300 different amplifiers on there. It's incredibly configurable, very complicated. Um, and their community has absolutely zero say in how they build their products and how they ship them and how they market them or anything like that. But they're incredibly passionate users of them. So in terms of how you create new sounds and how you understand all of the different amplifiers that are on the AxeFX, the community's built documentation, they provide answers, they organize local events, they do all of these different things. So communities offer all of that kind of value. The thing that companies often will be freaked out about, that they're nervous about is, am I going to give away the control to my community? And you don't have to in any stretch. What you have to do is you have to build an environment where people want to be, right? In the same way that people go to Disney World and they don't expect to be able to control what happens at Disney World. 
but they enjoy the experience of when they go there. And it's the same thing of what you do with communities. You create an environment where people feel part of something. It's meaningful for them. You build a sense of belonging, but you don't give away the keys to the castle. You just provide an environment where they can play a, a meaningful role in it. Yes, yes, totally agree there. And I really like the, the example you gave of the Disney World. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it's, come, it's come up a couple of times. Uh, community is a theme, I say, throughout all episodes of this podcast, more or less, it has uh, come up. But I see, yeah, this, this fear of uh, like handing over the control, which is not at all something like that. Right. Um, but it's also a way to, to help your users help each other. And as you said, Salesforce, uh, well, it, it would be a, an endless page if uh, they were to document uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, everything, everything they're doing. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. So when, uh, when a company considers uh, building a community, what are some key elements uh, they should definitely take in, into consideration uh, before they start and uh, throughout? It's, it's a great question. And this is, um, in many ways, one of the most complicated questions, because I think I touched on earlier on, communities are a, are a, are a weird cocktail of different things. There's the psychology <clears throat> excuse me, of how people think and operate and why we like to form into groups. There is the workflow of how you go out and like what infrastructure should you use and tools and what do those incentives look like. There's a lot of detail. And I think some people get a little bit um, put off by the amount of detail and they, and they they consider the, the, the mountain too high to climb. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I wrote this new book, People Powered, is I wanted to provide a really simple framework for how to do this that I've kind of developed over the years. And I'll break it down here and people can find out a little bit more about it in the book. The first thing I think you need to do is to identify the value of what you want to, like, what is the value that you want to create? In my mind, everything has to start with value. If you can ask people to come and join your, your community, they're going to take time away from their friends, their family, the pub, their hobbies, and what's in it for them. And you've got to start with that. Um, a lot of companies will say, well, what's in it for us? What do benefits do we get out of, the out of a community? But start with what you, what you want your audience to get out of. And to do that, you first of all need to think about, well, who are our target audiences? And I like to define it based upon practical contribution. So for example, you know, in a, for a developer marketing professional, the, a community could have people who are going to write code, it could be people who are going to produce documentation, provide support, run events, translate things, advocate what you're doing, all kinds of things. You've got to prioritize your communities first of all. And there's basically three models of communities out there. You've got what I call consumer, champion, and collaborator. Now, consumer communities are the usual kind of fans who get together because they like something like Star Trek fans hanging out in a forum. The champion communities are people who are really big fans of your product, your service, kind of like my uh, fractal audio systems example, the guitar example, and they do, they produce content and videos and provide help. And then collaborator communities are where people work together to build technology. And that will probably be of particular interest to this audience, but it subdivides into two areas. In a collaborator communities, collaborator communities are basically uh, open source projects. You work together in exactly the same code base. And there's a lot of nuance in making sure that people feel part of the same team. But for outer collaborator communities, those are people who build, let's say, uh, apps for the Google App Store, plugins for WordPress, you know, extensions for, for other platforms. You build something that sits on top of a platform. And what people want there is a great, just a, a simple, uh, elegant developer experience. So you first of all define what is the model that you want to use and what are the audiences? 
But then the key thing here is to build out a set of what I call big rocks, which are your annual objectives, where you say, this is what we want to do in our first year. The challenge with a lot of communities is that they'll um, just kind of start poking the edges of what they can do. Maybe throwing a bit of content out there, uh, maybe do a bit of social media, maybe run an event. But you've got to be intentional about about the experience, because what you're doing with the community is you're building a fixed experience about how someone can join and get a, and consume the value that you've defined earlier on. And what we do is we track a set of objectives, which I call these big rocks. Um, and the way in which we fill them up is I have a model that I call the community, uh, com- community participation framework. And essentially, it's difficult to explain because it's a, it's, a, it's a diagram. But what you want to do is when you identify your audience, you first of all want to on- onboard them so they can do something interesting, such as they build their first app with your SDK, or they produce their first piece of content, or they run an event. And then <clears throat> you've got to simplify that onboarding experience so they can get up and running as quickly as possible. Because a lot of communities, they suck at that. So people join the community, and then they get stuck. But the next piece is they then flow from flow through three phases of a community, casual, regular, and core. Now, what you're casual, once you've kind of gone up the on-ramp and you're going to start doing something, you're, you're very nervous. You have a lot of imposter syndrome. You don't really know anyone. Um, you don't really quite understand how the community works. So mentoring and guidance is critical in that casual phase. And then once you've built a habit, it takes about 66 days to build a habit. So you, you're used to going there most, most days in a week you then become a regular. And when you're a regular, this means that you're just part and parcel of the community. And this is all about just doing consistent, interesting work and reducing bureaucracy. And in every community, a very small number of people will become core. These are your rock stars. These are the people you treat with, you know, with white gloves. Um, and what you want to do to move them through that journey is put lots of individual incentives, you know, such as, okay, you've done your first contribution to the community. How do we get to the next two or three? Um, how do we get you more involved in events? How do we get you more involved in translations and, and other areas? And what you do is as you design your community and you pick out your infrastructure and your tools, you track that in your big rocks, in your annual objectives. Because then what you're doing is you're building accountability and you're planning. Because the problem with a lot of communities is that people come up with a lot of ideas and they enjoy the, the, the planning, but then they never track the execution of the planning. Um, and one of the things I, again, walk through in People Powered is some maturity models around how you measure that and you make it more efficient as you go through it. And that is essentially the framework that I've found to be the most effective way of doing it. The good news is that, you know, whether you've got five community managers helping you with this or whether you've got half a person, some, someone's time, you can, you can, it's as long as a piece of string, you can adjust how much you do based upon the, the resources that you've got available to you. Yes, obviously resources are... Uh... Are you bandwidth? And um, I really like how you use this, um, these rocks, the metaphor for you know, setting up your goals and um, using them you know, to build something uh, more structured. Uh, right. Obviously, you, you mentioned it a bit, but uh, I'd like to, to hear more about it. Is, um, what will make a community successful in the end depends uh, on a number of things. What are some areas uh, community leaders should uh, <coughs> track of to make sure they're on the right path, uh, some sort of uh, metrics or um, yeah. key things to look out for. So this, I think there's two pieces to this question. There is strategically, what should you do when building a community around a business? And then, and then how do you ensure that the work that you're doing is successful? 
Um, so let me start with some of the mistakes that people make. One of the mistakes that people make is that they go out and they hire a community manager or a developer relations person. Um, and there's some remarkably talented people out there who do this kind of work. Um, and, but they say to everyone in the company, uh, that person's building our community. And then people naturally gravitate to going through that person, right? So if they've got a question for the community, they'll ask Sarah or Dan or whoever it is to, to reach out to the community. You really don't want to do that. What, commu what communities want is they want access directly to the people who work at the company. So part of this is setting the expectation in the company that the community is part of what we do. You know, we build our products and services um, and that's what keeps the lights on. But our community, the people who use them, and we need to care about that. And it should be everybody's responsibility to play a role in doing that. So your community manager should be there as a facilitator in, in running this work and doing great work, but everybody should play a role in that. So you need to incentivize and set expectations in your teams that they're going to play a role in this. And a lot of people will be quite freaked out and nervous about how to do that when they start out. Like a lot of like regular engineers, for example, in the company be like, well, I don't entirely know what I should do. And what happens if I make a mistake and put a foot wrong or put my foot in my mouth? So you, you need to make sure that people feel comfortable in understanding what they need to do. And then that if, if they make a mistake, they're not going to get fired because we, we have to be able to make mistakes when, when doing something new. So that's one piece. The other piece, and I touched on this earlier, is put, <coughs> make sure that you execute on what your plans are. Uh, one thing that is a, a plague that is spreading through a lot of businesses is they spend lots of time in planning and articulating planning and um, you know whether it's OKRs or whether it's a racy matrix, whatever the latest planning methodology is and how they're going to put those plans into the system and track them and this, that, and the other. And then three months later, they decide we're going to replan and do something else. I'm a huge fan of Iron Maiden. And they pull off these incredibly elaborate tours. Um, like I saw them a little while ago, and they brought a, a full-size Spitfire plane that they hover over the stage in their first song. And the guy who manages them, Rod Smallwood, was asked once in an interview, how do you pull off these incredibly elaborate tours? And he said, it's simple. You make a plan, and you stick to it. So that's the other thing that's really critical. And that's why I like to build out the big rocks and all the individual tactics. But the other element, I think, that plays a, a really critical role here is always evaluating data and making changes on the data. Now, again, a plague that's, that's spreading through businesses right now is what I call metrics fetishism, where people want to track every conceivable metric. And they have these dashboards with hundreds and hundreds of different metrics about everything. And they spend lots of time figuring out how they can track absolutely everything. Don't do that. Pick five things and track them well. And look at the data that you see and ask the question, what does this mean and how do we make decisions based upon it? So I'll give you an example. Um, I tend to use a forum called Discourse with a lot of communities. It's a really great open source community platform. And I track in there, for example, page views. So how many people are browsing your community or going to your community forum? And a lot of community members are window shoppers. They go and look at your community before they'd ever register an account. So page views are a good way to see general growth of visibility of your community. Um, if the page views start going down, well, why is that? We, we need to get more exposure. Uh, but generally, you'll see the page views going up. But then I'll look at how many people are signing up. Now, if our page views are going up, but our signups are staying fairly flat, um, then that tells me there's not enough of a reason for people to sign up and actively play a role in the community. 
So from a reading perspective, we're being very successful. But from a um, sign-ups perspective, we need to give more of a reason for people to sign up. We need to incentivize that. You know, another, mo- another metric that I track is something called DAUMAU, which is where you take the number of daily active users and you divide it by the number of monthly active users. And it gives you a percentage figure of stickiness of how much people stick around. So for example, if you keep seeing the signups growing in your community and the page views are going and the stickiness is staying the same, then you knew you're doing a good job because the stickiness, if your stickiness goes down as you grow, then you know that you're losing people as your growth is coming in. So getting into a regular weekly cadence of let's look at these five things that we care about and what what do we see here and, and how do we hypothesize making changes based upon that data, I think is one of the most critical things that you should do. Totally agree with everything. We're, um, we're here as a company, uh, we're uh, you know, data-centric, obviously. Uh, yep. we, we strongly <laughs> believe in data and um, my, bar- my, my marketing background is you know, hand-to-hand with metrics. It's, uh, this is a different, right. this is <laughs> right. old professional life. Uh, has been, but uh, I understand what you're saying. I, I've been to events and someone, uh, one one of those pretty recently, uh, where I could see people, you know, being let's say scared of metrics or uh, kind of chaotic about what should I measure, uh, how should I measure it. But uh, I like the point you're making when you you need to set those rocks, as you said. Uh, yeah, I mean. you need to find the metrics that. Uh, match or reflect results with yeah. regard to, to do these rocks, which are your goals or uh, what you're trying to achieve there. I mean, I think one of the key things there is, is, is be intentional about your community. So be intentional about what do we want to do in the next year? How are we going to measure this? Um, what does success look like? You know, and we start that evaluation of being intentional by what is the value we want to create for which audiences? And how are we going to go about building that experience? But then with the metrics, and this is where I think people have lost their way with metrics, is you say, um, what do we want to learn? So we pick metrics based upon what we want to learn, not whether, not can we measure it? Uh, because we can measure, frankly, basically anything uh, in communities that's digital. It's very difficult to measure kindness and compassion and empathy and the human elements of a community. But we can measure you know, how many people are going to your website. How many pull requests have been submitted? What is the average time for first response? But what do we want to learn? And use that to guide your metrics and then have a regular evaluation of what are we learning? Uh, and I think that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible because there's no silver bullet to a community. We have to go through the process of um, discovering our insights in the same way that if people are listening within the context of this conversation around. Uh, advertising, for example, uh, you know, marketing professionals who do advertising. It's the same recommendation with advertising professionals. What do you do? You, you set up a couple of ads, you target them, and you see how they perform, and then you make changes to your, your copy, your imagery, your creative, based upon the data that you see. And we essentially have to do the same thing with communities. You said about Dan or Sarah, as you said, being uh, responsible for... <laughs> building a community, so, um, which is the biggest mistake where people just refer to them for uh, whatever they need uh, community-wise. So yeah. what are some things that uh, when building a community our listeners should avoid? Yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing is definitely avoid creating an ambassador to your community, that one person who everybody funnels their, 
their input through. Definitely avoid that. I think you should also, um, again, avoid um, a lack of uh, accountability without wanting to beat a dead horse. If you're going to put together a plan, then you should stick to the plan. And if we're going to change the plan, there should be a good reason to change the plan, that we don't just throw things away and start a new plan willy-nilly. And that's not just a community management thing. That's just a general good best practice business thing to do, a professionalism thing to do, I think. <clears throat> I think the other thing that you've got to be careful about with communities is, is creating a separation between the employees and uh, the community that's too stark. Right. So one of the areas where I spend a lot of time working with my clients, apart from putting together these strategies and helping them to build those skills in their companies, is helping them to kind of get a sense of the, the balance of expectations between the company and the community. Um, so as a general rule, what you want to do is you want to make sure that your community feels that they've got access to your, to your, to your company members and they can work collaboratively, collaboratively within a set of parameters. There's going to be some things that your company are just going to have decision-making authority on. Many things, like what goes into your product, for example. Um, they should have the final decision on that. Your community might want to feed into it and provide feedback and guidance, but you want to want to set those expectations clearly around where, where the line is drawn. You know? So again, using fractal audio systems as an example, they have never ever said that their you know, product design will be determined by the community. They've made it very clear. We decide what goes into our products. That's just the way it is. And um, some companies tend to tiptoe around their community members because they're worried that they're going to annoy them or frustrate them or cause a public disaster. And my view here is I'd rather disappoint you now than disappoint you in six months. I'd rather be upfront and set expectations than you have the wrong expectations. Then six months from now, we have to have an awkward conversation. So saying, for example, we control the trademark. We control the branding. We control what goes into the product. Um, all of those kinds of things, be upfront about it, I think is, 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 is really critical. The other thing I would say in terms of to avoid, don't overdo outreach. There is a, a, a common trend of companies who are starting to dip their toes into communities that they hire a, let's say, a DevRel person, and that person spends... 90% of their time at conferences, speaking, working on social media, doing content and outreach and those pieces. And that work is super valuable. Don't get me wrong. Like, and, and there are many wonderful DevRel professionals who do that work very well, far better than I could. But don't just do that at the cost of also what is the experience that people have when they come into the community. I, as a general rule, recommend that you need to give your DevRel people responsibility for the on-ramp into the community. I don't just want someone to go out there and find a developer. I want them to also actively care about the experience that that developer has coming into the community. Otherwise, you're only ever incentivizing the sale. You're not incentivizing the success of the sale. And I think that's really critical too. Yes, the, these are uh, definitely a lot of challenges and a lot of things to, to take into consideration when uh, building your community. Uh, Jono, what has been uh, your biggest challenge in building a community? Oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest challenge, frankly, that I have would, would say is, is entirely personal. It's, um, it's, it's, it's knowing what to do. Um, it sounds like a very general answer to the question, but... There's been times when I've worked with, with clients and I was actually having a conversation with a, with a potential client about an hour ago. And 
there are so many options available of what we can do in building a community. It's knowing what to pick and then having confidence in what you're doing. And when I started out with this, um, I'd have loads of ideas, but I wouldn't necessarily have the confidence of what I was going to do. Now, I don't really have that as an issue now as a consultant because I've worked with hundreds of companies and communities. So I've developed an opportunity, I've, I've had an opportunity to kind of try things that work and try things that have not worked. But being able to just narrow down and pick something and do something, I think sometimes people can be overwhelmed with so many options. You know, even if you just chuck in, uh, considering, let's say, infrastructure, do we use Discourse? Do we use Slack? Do we use Vanilla? Do we use Chorus? Do we use Bevy? Or like, what are the things that we use? Uh, and I think people can be overwhelmed by that. So that's why I think, you know, start simple, build something, have a clear eye of the value, have a clear eye of the experience that you want to build out, and then go from there. Um, and gradually it becomes easier as you get to know your community, as you get to know your, the, your you know, your, your company, as your skills grow, it gets easier. I have the luxury of, of doing this with lots of different places because I'm a consultant, but most people don't have that luxury. So, you know, just start somewhere and get going. Yes, and uh, as they say, practice makes perfect. Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like a massive cliche, but like you're going to fail, you're going to get it wrong. And you got to set those expectations with your management as well. Like say, look, we're new at this and we're going to get this wrong. We're, we're going to annoy some community members from time to time. We're going to probably choose the wrong platform and have to move to something else. Uh, we're going to spend too much money in swag. It's going to happen. But I think so long as you're always able to learn from those decisions uh, and understand why, um, then you, you actually gain something, which is you gain an insight in what not to do, <laughs> which is half the battle. Yes, totally agree there. Uh, thank you very much, Jono, for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, could it's a you pleasure. repeat where our listeners can get hold of you if they need more from you? Yeah, so my website is jonobacon, J-O-N-O-B-A-C-O-N.com. You can find out more about what I do. I write a lot of articles and um, my books are on there, like People Powered is on there. Um, and my social media is the same, um, Jono Bacon, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever else. And then People Power, the new book, is available on Amazon and all good bookshops. So, Thank you, Jono. And um, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. If you want to listen to other episodes, you can subscribe at developermarketingpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at SlashDataHQ for regular updates. Thank you, Jono. Thank you. Thank you.